welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Matt Carpenter on January 15th, Lord's Day Service. This morning is Matthew chapter 5. We'll begin in verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. When he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have recorded for us the words of our Lord. You have made known your ways. To Jacob, you've declared your deeds among the people. May we receive and be nourished and go forth from your presence with singing. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. What is it that draws people to the mountains, unless it's tourist attractions or family, vacations usually consist of mountains or sea. Why is that? Probably because they offer what we don't normally have, a glimpse of transcendence. Have you ever stared, like been on a mountain and stared out from there, and just looked and beheld what grandeur our Creator made by His Word, just by His Word. Or if you've ever been on the ocean, and you look out, and you can't see anything. I remember the first time I ever went to the ocean. I was six years old and I looked. That was the first time in my life I could ever remember looking and not seeing land. And I was amazed. I also got to see dolphins there too. That was nice as well. But both the sea and the mountains demand our attention. They, they draw us to the fact that there is something bigger than you and me. Mountains have always been special to God's people. For it is only through ascent that we come to God. When the ark of God's people came to rest in Genesis, it was on a mountain. You say, well, of course it was. 
that was the first thing that showed up when the water started to go down. Well, yes, but still, he didn't have to tell us that it came to rest on a mountain. But it did. The patriarchs met God on mountains. Moses met with Yahweh and the holy ones on a mountain. And he received the law on a mountain. Yet the people of God were forbidden from going up to that holy mountain. They could not touch it, much less ascend. We saw recently when we went through the book of Leviticus that the tabernacle was established to be a, a miniature mountain, a movable mountain, a place where God's presence would go with the people. So the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, that, that was God's presence. It would rest at a place, and wherever it rested, that's where they would build, they would put together the tabernacle, the miniature mountain of God. That's where they would meet with Him. But even though the people could come temporarily through the sacrificial system and offerings, they could come temporarily into the presence of the tabernacle, they could not remain there. Due to the people's sin and disregard, He removed His presence from them. And eventually they went into exile. The temple later on was destroyed and access to God was taken away. Now, of course, the people could still pray. And if I decide to like you. No, he said in Isaiah 65, verse 7, And I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob, and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains. Now, that's Jesus. But then he says, Mine elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. So he's going to bring out of Judah the one who will own the right, not only to go to the mountain, but who will bring his people to the mountain. Now this is just before they go into exile. But before the people could go, work was needed. If you start reading in the book of Matthew, you see, and this was pointed out recently in a great article by Alistair Roberts. If you ever started the book of Matthew, you see all these begats. What do we normally do when we get to the begats? We get over it. We, 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 we move. But in those, in those stories, Roberts points out that... that He's reminding us of an entire history of God's people up to that point. So that's in Matthew 1. And of course we know the story of Jesus and the wise men coming. But then in Matthew 3 we read of Jesus' baptism. Or also you could say His ordination to the new priesthood. And then in Matthew 4... Jesus goes to war. He goes to war with the enemy. His very last temptation from Satan was on a mountain. 
where the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the earth, promising them to Jesus if, he said, you will bow down and worship me, which of course Jesus refused. And then this little statement that we often just skip over, what does it say? What happened to Jesus after he resisted that final temptation? Angels came and ministered to him. So then Jesus followed on the offensive. He didn't just resist on the mountain. He came down from the mountain and it says he went about preaching the kingdom of God. He healed the sick, cast out devils. And what does this do? Well, it drew multitudes. There was a lot of people who had a, a definite interest in this new rabbi. He didn't just have a good message. He lived out this message. So the multitudes, we read in chapter 4, verse 25, it said, Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So you have this group that is, set, that is scattered who comes together to follow Jesus. This brings us to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now, up to this point, we could easily miss the parallels Matthew is drawing between Jesus and another man who did something just like that. Consider the life of Moses. He was in Egypt. He fled eventually to the wilderness for 40 years. He met there at the end of his time in the wilderness the angel of the Lord. And then he returned. Moses returned to God's people. He proclaimed a message to them of deliverance. And through spiritual warfare, he led them out. You see in the parallels? Jesus was for a time in Egypt. He was led to the wilderness for 40 days, whereas Moses was there 40 years. And afterward, Jesus encountered the angels who ministered to him. And then he returned. Jesus returned with a message of deliverance. The multitudes then followed both men. They followed Moses and they followed Jesus. And here we read that Jesus, like Moses, ascended the mountain. So Jesus is purposefully following the example of Moses. He will even refer to the law of Moses in this sermon. He knows what he's doing. But he expands, Jesus expands the message here. He rounds it out to the darkest places of the heart, bringing it not only to the Jews, but also expanding it to the Gentiles. And in this sermon, Jesus removes the crusty excess placed on the law by generations of extra-biblical teaching. Having fought with the devil in the mountains, Jesus ascended the mountain. He sat down, he received his, his disciples and began teaching. But here the parallels with Moses end. In Moses' day, the people were excluded from the mountain. They couldn't touch it or they would die. 
Not that they really wanted to come. We read in Hebrews, it says that there was thunder, lightning, and all kinds of tumult surrounding the mount. So if you were to go up to a place, and I know we're all modern, so, so we have all kinds of scientific explanations why nothing bad would happen to us, but I'm going to tell you what. If you started to drive close to a, a huge mountain, or not just drive, you're walking, and all of a sudden you see a cloud that's come down, you see lightning coming down, you see the mountain shake and the ground shake, what are you going to say? I think I'll go and you know, check out what's on Netflix tonight. Okay? That's not where I want to go. Of all the mountains you can climb, let's not go to the one that's shaking and has lightning coming down. And mm, Not for me. That was no place for God's people. But Jesus' work was more than restoring temporary access to God's presence or of just restoring the old priesthood who could enter into the presence of God on behalf of the people once a year. You see, Jesus ascended not to separate himself, but to proclaim and throughout his life subsequently show the way for the people to return to God. The calling of Jesus' life was not just to bring the people to the mountain, but to actually bring the mountain to the people. Because the mountain is the presence of God. And Jesus is the presence of God. He is a demonstration of God's promise to be with His people. This sermon reveals the path to peace, flourishing, and joy, all of which are wrapped up in that very first word of verse 3. We know verses 3 through 11 as the Beatitudes, which we'll talk about more in the future, because they begin with the word blessed, or in some translations, happy. We have to be careful, though, because our English words are very tight and they don't encompass all of the richness that is included in this Greek word that's translated blessed. This sermon is not a guide to our financial gain or self-actualization, but it is the fulfillment of all the Jewish prophets had proclaimed. And even it's a fulfillment of the, the best of what the pagan bards, poets, and philosophers had spoken of, but through glass, darkly. The mountain is actually where Jesus commissions his followers. In Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, we read this. Quote, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. So where does the commissioning of Jesus go to his disciples. He calls them to the mountain, but he doesn't say, let's just hang out here. He calls them there and he sends them out 
from there to do the work of the kingdom. We come to the presence of God, but we don't stay in this one place. We go out from the presence and we bring that presence to the people. This is the work of disciples then. It's the work of disciples now. Jesus calls his people into God's presence. Over the next weeks, we will look closely at Jesus' teaching. How he guides us in wisdom and teaches us to walk with God. As his followers, he calls us also to come before his holy mountain. But, like the followers of old, there's a problem. Our fathers of Israel, in Israel faced this. And that is, we were removed from the mountain. We sin. We break fellowship with each other. And then when, or when people break fellowship with us, we respond, say, oh, you're going to break fellowship with me? I can do better than that. I'll break it with you. Deeper, harder, meaner, nastier. Never let a hurt only go one way. Or sometimes we set our own standards. And then, of course, when we surpass our own standards, man, I'm looking pretty good. Now, of course, nobody else meets my standards, but that's between them and God. I'm just, who am I to treat them like that? Whether it's that that pride, or for others, we're not allowed on the mountain because of unbelief. Fear. I've not done enough. I've not read enough. I've not been... Uh, fill in the blank. You know what you've not done enough of. You know the, the unbelief that creeps in, that whispers in your ear, you're trash. You don't deserve any of this. If people knew who you really were, oh boy. Or just, we read God's promises and, and I mean, just, we don't think that that can really be for me. It's too good to be true. It can't be. Well, so whether it's pride or unbelief, or any other sin, we can't come up the mountain dragging those things. Have you ever tried climbing a mountain with a lot of stuff on your back? I'm not talking about just a, a measly backpack. You know, 40, 50 pounds, eh. I mean real weight. Don't look at me, I haven't. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just asking you, okay? I know I, I, know I can't do that. Well, no, we can't take heavy barbells up a mountain. It doesn't work. Well, we can't take all of our sin up the mountain of God. Because I'm going to tell you, even if we could get it up there, you read the, the very last verses of Isaiah. You know, the, the, Isaiah chapters 40 through 66 are fantastic. They are wonderful. 
But then the very last verse of Isaiah, it's, uh, it's not exactly... He doesn't end on with, with, with the most joyful note. He says, after he talks about the new heavens and new earth, this is Isaiah 66, 24, And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm dies not, and their fire is not quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. There you go. That's the last verse of Isaiah. So, that's what happens to those who try to climb the mountain with weights. They don't make it. And that's all of us. Every single one. If it was only up to us, that mountain would be a lonely place. So another mountain journey was necessary. This time, Jesus ascended, taking all the things that kept us from God's mountain. And he died instead of us. He died in our place. The veil of his flesh was torn, cleansing us with his own water and blood that we could go to the mountain. The temple veil was ripped from one end to the other. And on the first day of the new civilization, the resurrection made the way for God's holy mountain crystal clear. Then, after 40 days, he and his followers ascend yet again to the Mount of Olives where he commissioned them for the last time to take the message of his kingdom from the holy mountain to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 1. Before he ascended. And this is where we are. We gather each week at God's holy mountain, with saints across space and time to glorify the Father, to hear and receive Him. We receive from Him. But this is not even as good as it gets. Because again, He doesn't just bring the people to the mountain. He's using us to expand that's the wonder of Nebuchadnezzar's vision in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar saw the image of that huge statue which represented, Daniel said, the, the different nations of the world that were coming in that period of history. He saw this. And it scared him because there was a rock that came and it destroyed the statue and then it spread. And it was a mountain that spread throughout the whole earth. Now, what was scary news to a pagan is good news for the people of God. We read then of the end. Back in Isaiah 66. He says, They shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto the Lord out of all nations, upon horses, chariots, and drawn by mules and upon swift beasts, to my holy mountain. 
Jerusalem, says the Lord, and the, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the Lord's house. The end is that the nations will be brought into the holy mountain, the new Jerusalem. The nations flock to that mountain because they see a heavenly light that shines before men. It causes them to glorify the Father. So how do we fulfill what Isaiah is talking about there? How do we participate in bringing the nations? Well, that is what Jesus' sermon is all about. But today, remember this. The mountain of God is with men. And the way for us is clear. So ascend and then take what we receive and go out that we may declare it among the nations. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers and we ask that you would indeed cause your work to shine forth and use us to do so. In Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.